Kristen, and before we jump into the episode, there's just a few things I wanted to tell you about that I am so excited for. Mainly, I'm coming to Denver. What? Yes, it's exciting. The last Saturday of April, Saturday, April 30th, I'll be performing with the Grolics at Bug Theater in Denver. Then Sunday, May 1st, headed over to the Boulder Comedy Show. And those of you who know, Sunday, May 1st, that's International Workers' Day. And I I don't know who you'd rather spend International Workers' Day with than me, a union organizer. We can talk about the Amazon union. We could talk about Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Emma Goldman. It'll be, it'll be a real fun time, and you should come. Uh, let's see. I'll stop my history TED Talk there. Uh, so then the first week of May, got shows all over Denver, including Katie Bowman's show at um, Sushi High called Comedy High. Katie is another um, great comedian who also has a horror movie podcast. It's called Help Me, I'm Scared. So I'm going to be doing an episode there when I'm visiting her. So be on the lookout for that. And check out her podcast too. We need more women talking about horror. It's taking it over. Uh, Let's see, then Saturday, May 7th, headed to the Comedy Fort, which I've heard such amazing things about. I'm going to do a spot on Kate Willett's show, who is also amazing. Yeah, and then on the way home, closing out headlining Zoo Bar on Sunday, May 8th, um, which, Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm so excited to come back to Brad Stewart's room. Zoo Bar is always fantastic, fantastic room. Super excited. Uh, And then mid-May, I'll be swinging through Chicago again. Chicago, I love you. Uh, Tuesday, May 17th, I'll be doing Best Night Ever at the Lincoln Lodge. And then Wednesday, May 18th, Comedians You Should Know. So, yes, Chicago, Lincoln, Denver, Fort Collins. I want to see you. I want to see your beautiful faces. And can I just say, oh, man. It is so good to be out in the world doing comedy again. I've been uh, locally doing a bunch of shows and like doing longer sets again. I've been doing 45 minutes, which feels really good. It feels like I had the momentum I was at in January of 2020. So (laughs) I hope nothing bad happens again. But yeah, so back out there, I I took for granted how much performing stand-up meant for my mental health and now like booking all these dates it just feels like my life is back it feels good I feel, maybe I'm in a manic phase I don't know it feels good I'm gonna write it <laughs> um, I know this is quite a ways out but if you're anything like me you're a planner so I wanted you to be able to get it on your calendar on Wednesday October 19th we're doing Bloody Mary live at Planet of the Tapes in Louisville, Kentucky. So if you are in that neck of the woods, come on out. We're going to have a bunch of fantastic Louisville local folks on talking about their favorite horror movies. And yeah, I plan to do a couple live Bloody Marys um, throughout October. October is the month I am like most booked and most popular. My take on 30-year-old horror movies is in demand that month. So... (laughs) feel really popular in October and you know if you want me to come to your town and do a live Bloody Mary there hit me up if you want me to come do comedy there hit me up my email is always open baby all right 
Enough shameless self-promotion. Let's get into this episode. We chat about censor with my wonderful and beautiful longtime friend, Emma Johnson. Hope you love it. Why are you creeping up behind me? Where did you get those claws? Welcome to Bloody Mary, a podcast about horror movies and what they mean to us. I'm your host, Kristen Lighty, and tonight we have with us, I am so excited, uh, she is an author, she does conservation work. We were roommates once. Uh, welcome to Bloody Mary, Emma Johnson. Emma, so glad to have you on. Yay, thanks for having me, Kristen. I know we've been planning this for like four years, so it's about time. <laughs> it is about time. Uh, why don't you tell the people a little bit about your book, Unicorn Wasteland, and the work that you do with conservation? It's so cool. Hey, so I live on a farm in West Central Wisconsin, where I focus on pollinator habitat, restoration, um, turning, I'm mainly converting a five acre field that had previously been in corn and soy rotation into pollinator habitat. So planting um, wildflowers and native grasses, all specifically native to this area in Wisconsin and specifically keyed to the bees and butterflies and other pollinators that have uh, historically um, called this area habitat. Cool. I was lucky enough to visit the farm last January and it is so beautiful. I absolutely loved my time there. It's very peaceful and it feels very safe to me. Mm -hmm. So earlier this month, I read Unicorn Wasteland and I absolutely loved it. I read it in like one sitting. It was so good. I can't recommend it enough for folks. It's kind of like sci-fi um, about a woman returning to find her mother who had kind of um, maybe abandoned her, um, but like just, oh all the emotions and the imagery. And I do have a kind of joked when I was reading it because I was like, oh no, I hope the main character doesn't have a roommate she hates because we lived together when you wrote it. <laughs> and I was like, that would be very funny. <laughs> Just many hours locked away in my room in our Chicago apartment <laughs> working on that book. And I'm glad it finally saw the light of day. It was a long road and um, my friends at Everybody Press in New York City, based in Brooklyn, New York, kind of reached out to me out of the blue. And they were like, we're starting a publishing company. We're going to do these beautiful handmade books. And do you have anything we could publish? And I said, yeah, why don't you publish this one? And so they did. And they have treated me super well. They flew me out to New York for the release party. Oh. And... So far, the book's been getting a pretty good reception. There's a lot of my heart in that book, and I think that it's suitably weird and suitably queer, and overall, I feel like it's a positive book, even though it's kind of a rem an emotional roller coaster. It was, and I don't want to give anything away, but like... I was unnerved. I was sad. Uh, there were so many, like one scene in particular when a character left made me cry. And uh, yeah, it was so good. I can't recommend it enough. Pick it up, everybody. So I know the answer to this question because I've known you for so long, but uh, what's your relationship to horror movies, Emma? Oh my gosh. I just have a really deep and complex 
relationship with horror movies that goes back to when I was a little girl and um, I just got into horror movies, watching them with my dad. Um, obviously watching the universal horror movies. Um, it just recently came to my mind that I remember watching like the Abbott and Costello um, meet Dracula, meet Frankenstein, meet the Wolfman horror movies and just being handed his collection of famous monsters of Filmland and other horror magazines that he had had when he was a kid. And I just spent so much time reading about every single movie in those pages before you know this is well before um you know this was in the early days of vhs actually so it was hard to see a lot of these movies unless they happened to be on tv and that kind of like i developed this intense love for kind of reading about a movie first and having to like track it down and having a movie in my mind for years before I saw it. Um, and that kind of relationship with horror was really important to me. Um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's, I loved having people on who have like fond memories of horror. Cause some people I feel like maybe I cajoled them to be on. <laughs> They're like, I don't like horror. Just like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> horror. I feel like horror is totally in my blood. I took a couple years off uh, from horror and now I'm deep back into it and it feels strangely like home, you know? It's weird to think of a genre as being something, like horror as being something so comforting, but it really, as I come back to it, it's it's very comforting to me. I know, I know the beats, I know the tropes, I know, you know, I know all of these facets and they just, there's a weird safety for me there um, that I hadn't really thought about previously. I love that. I loved that when we lived together, we would, it would kind of be like, what are we watching tonight? And uh, <laughs> it did have that homey feeling. I will admit the only, did. Time, the only time I couldn't hang was when we watched that movie about being trapped in a shark cage underwater and- <laughs> oh. What was that, like 47 meters below or something? Yeah, I was like, this is too many phobias. I can't do it. <laughs> I just feel that movie is like, that captures all of this claustrophobia and water fear. And I, I as someone who does conservation work, and I'm now constantly around nature 24-7, I have a little bit of a grudge against movies like that, that oh. kind of... I ha they're the man versus nature thing where nature is the horror. And let's be real, humans are the horror oh, yeah. in any, like, <laughs> in any scenario. Like, to call sharks the, the horror, like, that's like, there's, there's a, obviously a long history um, going back to Jaws and going before Jaws of, you know, nature horror. But it's very unfair. And I think there needs to be more horror in which um nature is the protagonist and uh, <laughs> i love that it might yeah. be too on the nose because that's kind of an everyday thing <laughs> i feel like i have i'm a little afraid of sea life but i feel like i have the understanding like that's their realm and i shouldn't hey. be there. like <laughs> so that's ingrained in me oh yeah um, and i mean it's uh, it's it's fair to be afraid of 
creatures behaving like they're supposed to behave. But even, you know, beyond that, like most, most critters aren't going to hurt you. You know, I think about this, like, as I hear the coyotes howling, like at 2 a.m., they wake me up because they're standing right by my front porch. And I think, yeah, they could, you know, if they got in the mood, they could maul me if I went out there and like tried to dance with them. But for the most part, they're just hanging. They're just doing their thing. And they're no threat to me. I'm more of a threat to them, realistically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, what, what is the very first horror movie you remember seeing? I was racking my brain about that. And I think it goes back to the at least the first I can remember seeing is this movie called Demonoid. And going back to what I was saying about watching movies with my dad, there was a show on the USA Network oh, called um, that channel. It was Commander USA's Groovy Movies. And it was, I think, every Saturday or Sunday afternoon, he would play usually B movies, sometimes, you know, bigger horror movies. But my dad and I would watch them. And I remember, and this this might be my first memory of being scared about a movie because I watched this movie with my dad and I remember watching it with him at my grandma's house at his mom's house and the movie demonoid is about a killer severed hand that like bounces from people's bodies and I know that for weeks after that even immediately after that I went outside and was playing with like my brothers and my cousin and we were joking about having a hand be like oh, it's in the wagon. I can't, don't look in the wagon. The severed hand is in there. And I had such a hard time like going to bed for a significant period of time because there's a scene in the movie where they pull down the sheets and there's the severed hand. And of course, I expected that severed hand to just be waiting for me in bed to maul me. Oh no! Thankfully, I was never mauled by a severed hand. And so I can speak with you here today. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> Like my life's taken some turns, but I never got mauled by a severed hand. Yeah, although you might have just uh, cursed yourself. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm a pretty tough gal. I feel like I can take a severed hand. You are. You have that chainsaw, don't you? I got a chainsaw. I just had a chainsaw lesson the other day, and I have like a 150-pound pig that would just eat that hand. Oh, yeah. yeah. Buttercup would eat that hand in, in like no questions asked. For us to talk about tonight, Emma chose the 2021 movie Censor that was recently put out on Hulu. Uh, it is the story of video nasty censor worker Enid, who uh, discovers the movie Don't Go in the Church, uh, which brings up a lot of memories from her past and a situation where her sister went missing. And we don't really know what happened to Nina, her sister, um, but... Uh, Enid herself kind of just spirals into collapse. And um, yeah, so as you know, uh, and if you made it this far already, whoops, sorry, we go full spoiler in Bloody Mary. So uh, go watch Censor, and then you can come on back for this conversation. Emma, what made you want to pick Censor? Which I must, I must say, I'm so excited that you did because it's a movie that I really wanted to talk about. There's a lot to talk about in this movie. And initially, it it really struck me in the way that it confronts horror fandom mm. and it's not i mean it's not homage you know it's not fan service mm -hmm. it, it really is 
confronting um, horror fandom. But after multiple rewatches, I learned that what really hit me is how the movie is ultimately about unaddressed trauma and disassociation and what happens in the wake of that and having recently experienced a really intense trauma and having dealt with really intense disassociation and being taken down a very strange path with that dissociation, I really saw my situation reflected in that and it helped me kind of like realize the, the, how scary what I went through was and kind of helped me move past it. And it's interesting that it was one of the first horror movies I watched after, you know, taking this couple of years off of horror movies after experiencing this trauma. And um, I come back to this movie and this movie is so much about um, exactly what I had gone through. And it felt like it was, it was a great interrogation of that. Um, kind of lastly, I feel like it's really a perfection of what Videodrome, one of my like all-time favorite movies, is, is really a perfection of what Videodrome is trying to do. And I think what Videodrome does is, you know, it's got this idea of blending what's presented to us on television, what's presented to us on the screen um, with our own realities and causing confusion with that. In Videodrome, it's external mechanisms that cause the confusion ultimately. And what Sensor does that I feel is so brilliant is it's internal mechanisms, it's internalized. It's her trauma and disassociation that causes her to become entwined with this film and what she's seeing in the screen. And I just think that's so much more real and so much more heart-wrenching and so much more true to what I've experienced now, um, you know, well into an adulthood. Wow, yeah. It was such an amazing film. I watched it a couple times and, you know, I, I just, I love the message so, so much of this idea that like the video nasties need to be censored because that's what's making people do terrible things, right? But then, I, we, then we find out that, um, you know, the, the man who ate his wife's face never even saw deranged the I, they were talking about. And like, you start to think about like, oh, well, this violence doesn't come from watching art. It comes from like not exploring our feelings or exploring grief and guilt and, um, you know, really coming to terms with that trauma. Absolutely. I, there's also, you know, there's a, there's kind of a workplace safety um, theme that comes into play too. That's kind of right in your wheelhouse. And I got to thinking about how, you know, Enid is experiencing this as the result of being overworked, um, being pressured in the workplace. You know, she's doing too many hours. Who knows if she's being paid overtime fairly? Who knows what even overtime was like in the UK in the 80s? But um, yeah, there's there's definitely that question in there too. And it made me think about like currently Facebook censors, the people who have to work that job and the things, things they see on a daily basis. And 
we know there's been kind of discussions about how they're treated and in terms of workplace mental health. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't believe, I didn't even think of that angle. Shame on Kristen. (laughs) Uh, Kristen, this is your thing. (laughs) Yeah. I love what you said earlier um, about like the community around horror. I I feel like it's very similar to like the community that was in punk rock scenes before the internet of like how you had to wait for something or search Mm -hmm. something out or read a review in a zine and like hope that that album came to your record store. It, I don't want to be like one of those boring, like it was better when we were all younger, but um, I do feel like there was a certain sense of things that were more magical before the internet. I think that I I love this idea and I think it's our experience and it's definitely our experience to cherish where we had to hunt these things down because they weren't anywhere close to at our fingertips. And I think it's interesting how the experience has reversed in a way where everything is at our experience at our fingertips. And instead of having the, the challenge of having to hunt it down, the challenge is sussing out what is going to be meaningful to us and determining determining what that you know what we're going to feed ourselves in terms of media oh that's an excellent point yeah because there's so much now just- there's so much and there's no way you know and i think about it in terms of like you know when when we were growing up it was that you know psychotronic um, film magazine was like my go-to for like finding out about obscure movies. And then I'd see if I could find a bootleg or something. And then eventually these like um, boutique DVD companies came in and started releasing some of these. But now I like, that was, that was our challenge. That was our, um, you know, our, you know, what, what fostered our love for it was this hunt and this learning and this growing And it's just a totally different hunt for kids these days because the hunt isn't for the thing. The hunt is for the thing that resonates with them, like trying to find that needle in the haystack. And it's it's really interesting. And I am curious how people who grow up now with having all of this at their fingertips, like how they're going to, you know, in 20, 30 years from now, when they're our age, how they're going to... um, look back at that like what their nostalgia is going to feel like oh yeah yeah that will be wild (laughs) you know there was one part of the film where I was like thank god for the internet and that's when uh Enid was trying to find a list of films by uh the director Doug Stone or uh Frederick North Frederick North yes and uh the woman it was kind of like her domain where she had everything categorized and she told Enid without a list that'll take a week (laughs) yeah (laughs) like literally just a room with files of movies and information about the movies and what was censored from the movies and it really is like kind of reflects that whole thing right like you need to delve in and like look with your hands for this um I think that in 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 a way that's part of how I feel that it can, the film confronts horror fandom. And then you know I think about this. There's so many movies that have come out as of late of like '80s nostalgia, and where it's total fan service. And not knocking any of those movies, but this is just definitely not one of these movies. This is a period film 
of a certain period that also happens to have horror elements and take from the films that um, it weaves into its narrative in a really thoughtful way. But it's not, it's not kind of loving about horror fandom or horror movies. There's, there's that scene where she's like frantically digging to find out this information and it's not pretty or cute or fun it's you know trying to get this and there are two other scenes that really struck me as being very confrontational the one where she's in the video store and getting the brown bag of you know the the frederick north movie that she wants to see and uh of course this man is sort of challenging the woman's fandom which you know surprise (laughs) um but the way that she turns it on its head again is not like triumphant it's her using the the um violence and gore in the movie in this way that makes him squirm and it's not cool it's not meant to be cool it's not meant to be like look at her cool knowledge of horror it's like this is what this is about like this is what's happening here and it really reminded me of so many kind of awkward conversations I've had at horror conventions with men who the only thing they pull from the movies are these scenes of violence Mm -hmm. and it's never what brought me to horror um and and to hear men like using that to try to make me squirm um it was interesting kind of seeing it turned around. Yeah. I like that you brought up how this is like, it's a a kind of accurate look at horror fandom. Cause I remember sitting with you at a few conventions and, uh, (laughs) I, I love horror fans and I love horror fandom in a lot of ways, but there are folks who gravitate to it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And it does get kind of frightening and it gets uncomfortable as a woman, especially when, uh, you know, the thoughts that these men are clearly expressing are very violent thoughts that they've decided to speak to you and they feel that they're safe in doing so because they're repeating something from a movie. Yeah, it is disturbing. And then, you know, the idea that women can't be fans, you know, I've been at conferences with my little table and my postcards and like dudes come up and try to like one up. Miss you. <laughs> yeah and it's like obviously I like scary movies I do this whole podcast I, I don't know what you want from me um yeah <laughs> I think a lot of men get confused between fandom and trivia oh, and uh, yeah. they're not they're not the same thing like there's I love horror I have there's so much that I like love about horror but I also have memory problems and I'm not going to be able to answer you know, random questions to, you know, appease some, you know, male horror fans um, feelings that I belong, I, I have a, a right to a space here. Um, that's just not how I interact with horror. I like learning about facts, but I can't store them and spew them out like it's trivial pursuit oh yeah I remember when I was like a teenager to remember so many facts about punk rock that would be like credentials you know and now yeah I can't even remember the name of the bands I like (laughs) I I don't like 
especially now with everything streaming. I don't know song names. I don't know what album is on. I don't, I don't know. I just like it. I, I may have told you this story, but when I was in high school, you know, I was not, I was not a popular girl. And uh, I started wearing my punk rock shirts, you know, mm-hmm. that I bought at Truckers Union in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I had my Dead Kennedy shirt that I was so proud of because like, you know, at, at 15 years old, Dead Kennedys was opening up my mind and like making me think of things that, you know, now as an adult, I'm like, oh, Afra, shut up. <laughs> but anyway, I, I was assaulted in the hallway at school this um the like cool punk kid at school who ran the high school radio station literally grabbed me by the shirt and slammed me against a locker. And as he held me pressed against the locker, yelled trivia questions about the dead Kennedys in my face. And I still remember it was like, what's Chelsea Afro's real name? Who played guitar on this song on fresh fruit for rotting vegetables? And I was like, I, I don't know. And he like exasperated with me not being able to answer any of the questions, let me go and said, don't let me ever see you wear that shirt again. Oh my God. And I wore that shirt until the sleeves fell off and holes came in it. Yeah. I love it. And uh, was it, wasn't it East Bay Ray? He's not that great of a guitar player anyway. Who cares? Like, <laughs> let, it, let it go, bully. Right. I mean, like, acting like these guitar players are, I don't know. Whatever. If you're listening to punk rock for like brilliant guitar work, it's I don't know. You need to expose yourself to more music, perhaps. I I love that because I my dad brought me up with a lot of like classic rock guitar god type music, like thin. Yeah. And I remember the first time listening to Black Flag, just like oh, like <laughs> so you got see what they're trying to do here, I guess. But yeah. I've been listening to so much classical and jazz lately that it's like wow wow okay like it's, it's hard to have conversations about like oh boy <laughs> which he, Greg Ginn is really good <laughs> it's like is, is he like I don't I kind of I don't know if that's the case but also there's like questions of good and bad like objective good and bad are kind of pointless in a lot of contexts and I think punk is one of those contexts I agree and horror too to some extent like good or bad is is really like it's not this objective thing that that's true i just i really related to enid in those scenes like at the video store and even in her workplace where she kind of had to like prove her stuff to like be taken seriously in the boys club right and uh, and of course even as she tries to it's you know, she's constantly being hit on and sexually harassed. I think it's it's so wonderful to see movies like these made by women because they understand um, nuance that I don't think men always see. Um, and they think that like, oh, you know, the scene of the one guy who's like trying to, to soothe Enid after the whole blow up, after the murder and after her, like abilities as a sensor are being questioned and this guy like is trying to to soothe her and then it ends up being him just asking her out on a date and uh-huh. she's kind of caught off guard but she's not she's not caught off guard i mean she's fully expecting it but um it's just a lot yeah yeah 
Yeah, it felt very true to life. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, what other themes jumped out at you in this movie? So the thing I think about a lot is dissociation. So can we get kind of deep and personal? Oh, for sure. Okay. So I, so Enid's got this unresolved trauma that she experienced something um, and her sister went missing. It's not entirely clear what happened. At one point, it kind of starts to lead you to believe that Enid perhaps was responsible for her sister's death. But what I find intriguing about that is that she doesn't get driven down this thought process until she sees the film. And it's like her disassociation being paired with these experiences that she's having and these new kind of subtle violences that she's experiencing in the workplace, outside of the workplace and on the screen are dragging her in this direction. And what's scarier to me than the idea that she killed her sister is this idea that because of her disassociation, she has convinced herself that she's done something that there's literally no evidence in the film besides these probably false thoughts that she did. And that's scary. And it brings me to like, you know, I experienced this trauma and I was experiencing disassociation really bad, which is a difficult thing to even describe, but it feels like you're not in your life. You're not engaged with your life. It feels like these things are playing out and you don't really have a ton of control over them, almost like you're watching your life as a movie. And for me, it made me really susceptible to um, to narratives that weren't really happening. And uh, it's, I had this experience where someone who identifies as a witch gave me these seeds and told me that these seeds would help me become one with nature and they'd help me solve my problems and they would were what I needed to heal me. And the understanding that I got was that I was supposed to ingest these seeds, which these seeds were poison. Oh. Um, they're a datura plant, which actually if you take enough seeds and the quantity of seeds this person gave me was plenty to, to stop a human heart from what I understand now. Jeez. But kind of in the, the midst of this dissociation, I thought that this was the story that my life was in, that I had been given these seeds to heal and that at the time this happened, I was out visiting a farm far away. I was far away from home. I was far away from my support network. And I thought that the story that this person had kind of um, unraveled for me was that I was supposed to take these seeds and kind of go off into the woods and see what happened. Oh. Um, Thankfully, there were some people who pulled me out of it and I like pulled myself out of it enough to like reach out to my therapist. But I very much see um, Enid's path reflected in that, in that it feels like she's experiencing dissociation. She feels, it feels like as she's going through this narrative, she's going through these motions and that she isn't super engaged with what she's doing. Um, 
you know, she's pulled now to do this research. She's pulled to dig into these other films. She's pulled to the producer's house where she's yet again sexually assaulted by this producer. And she sort of unintentionally murders him in a way that, again, going back to the confronting horror fandom, the way that she kills this abuser um, by pushing him onto his horror trophy statue um, and impaling him through is really brilliant and I think really confrontational of the horror genre in general. But um, she says this line after it where it's like, you know, something like, thank you for this information. I forgot exactly what she said, but it was very like removed from the situation and she didn't even seem to grasp what had happened. And as the movie progresses, it seems that she is grasping less and less what's happening to her physically and latching more onto this narrative that she's getting from the movies, from these random bits of information that she's seeing, um, you know, even the little bits of um, kind of feedback that she's getting from her overbearing parents are sending her along this path that's not her narrative, but it's a narrative that she is being pulled along. Yeah, I I agree with that. The flow of the film feels so like constant. Like there's a lot of tension building. Like we never see her like go home and relax. You know, it's always work, 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 parents, work, work. Uh, and then, you know, that it kind of gets in that flow, you get used to it. And then all of a sudden we're just like kind of transporting place to place, like the director's house, the movie set. And I think especially it's heightened when we get on set and then it's almost kind of like ethereal in a way, like she's just kind yeah. of in places and captured that really well. Totally unrelenting, it's totally unrelenting. And I feel like that, that kind of final sequence where she's on the film set and that's that's where little bits of homage come in but it's the right time for it because it's her kind of becoming one with this film narrative that she's created and the lighting looks like video nasties it looks like anthropagus it looks like dario argento films you know it looks like all of these things and it's executed so perfectly I loved all the red when she was like weeping in the woods after she had mur murdered poor Beast Man. Um, Beast Man. Yeah, and the forest just looked like lava. That was so cool. You can't help but I look at that guy and he looks like Peter Steele from Typo Negative. <laughs> and I just I'm like, oh, you killed him again. He's dead again. Oh my God, you're right. He does. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the other theme I really loved in this movie is that, um, you know, like horror is so censored and looked upon so poorly by critics. And yet, like what's happening in the real world is far scarier. Like they show the footage of Thatcher talking on the TV while, um, you know, there's a minor strike happening and like cops are just bashing the shit out of people and their faces are all bloody because, you know, they're probably trying to do something like, oh, I don't know, advocate for a better wage. Uh, so I, I really liked that statement that the film made as well. It's a, it's a distraction. It's this constant distraction that we're getting from the news from politicians, like pay attention to this not important thing 
while we deal with this, you know, while we deal out this violence over here, like criticize this instead, criticize this small, easily controlled thing. I think about the, the situation with, um, is it Nestle and the M&Ms right now and oh, how, yeah. you know, the, these, uh, suddenly there's this hint of, and they've been, you know, using child labor and poor labor practices going back decades, but more attention suddenly is drawn to it with these lawsuits. And suddenly everyone's paying attention to, oh, you know, the M&Ms changed and now the lady M&M doesn't have high heels. She has the sexy boots instead of high heels. And uh, the, the whole narrative shifts to this and is, is this okay? Is it okay that we have non-binary M&Ms? Oh, I don't know. Instead of this discussion about like, oh yeah, Nestle killing babies in third world countries. Yeah, and I am just shocked at how much everyone freaked out over this M&M like shoe change choice. Like, <laughs> it's wild, it's wild. It's easy though. Like I don't, I, I understand it. It's an easy discussion to be had. I think there are valid pieces of that discussion because obviously, you know, NB people want to be recognized and reflected, even if it's in M&Ms, you know, yeah. like we, we don't need super sexy M&M, like maybe she can be just a normal woman M&M without like super high heels. Like there's, I mean, there's discussions about the over-sexualization of cartoon imagery and commercial cartoon imagery to be had, but they're very small discussions in the big scheme of things. And realistically, most of them have been had, most of them have been had and resolved at this point. And they're like the ghosts of them linger on. But if we look at the media, I think that if you watch most Saturday morning cartoons, there's not, I mean, it's not a thing that we need to worry about so much. Like right now up in my area of Wisconsin, there's like almost like an urban legend kind of shifting between each school district that uh, students and children are identifying as furries. And so principals are letting them bring uh, litter boxes in. And so recently parents like showed up at a school board meeting in Pulaski to be like, what you're doing is wrong. They can't be furries. And all the principals were like, what? <laughs> like No one had any idea. It's not really happening. It's just like right furries now. even drag litter boxes around. Is that a thing in the furry community? No. No. I don't even think that's a real thing among furries. No, they just not that I'm all that close to the furry community, but put on costumes and a hug, like. <laughs> but it's yeah. like bait for them, you know, something to get right. Mad about. Something to get mad about. Oh no! Like I, oh my! I like we're I. I the obviously, you know, censorship is key to this discussion. And it's amazing watching this movie and seeing, you know, they're they're playing scenes from these movies. And I've seen a lot of the the video nasties of the era. And the special effects aren't like nobody's thinking that in Anthropagus there's really a baby being eaten. Like nobody's like, this is a real thing happening. Mm-hmm. Um and to this day, like there are still these blowups. And right now, the one that I think is most alarming is the blowup going on about Mouse, the, the yeah. Art Spiegelman book. And uh, how, I mean, that book has been in publication for decades. And now all of a sudden, 
some folks latch onto it and think that it's not appropriate for kids. And that's, that's so scary. It's so scary that like you can watch a, a period movie from the eighties about censorship and think, Oh, Oh, the eighties were censorship, but the same thing is still happening. It's bad. Yeah. And the mechanism behind the censorship of mouse is so scary. Like, Oh, it doesn't feel fascist to like ban a book talking about how bad fascists were. Like, right? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of a terrifying time we live in. It is. It is. I don't think these. I don't think these censorship discussions have ever gone away. I think no. that they've always been here, and right now it's it's such an interesting discussion because I think that both Democrats and Republicans are um, having these conflicted discussions because they both want to censor each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's sort of baffling. It almost seems like it becomes this game of one-upsmanship. Like, oh, you're going to censor Joe Rogan? Well, we'll censor Mouse. Oh, you're going to censor Mouse? We'll censor Donald Trump. Uh, like, I don't know. It's this, it's this bizarre it's turned into this political game where there really isn't even a lot of attention going into the substance, not that there ever was, but I don't know. It just seems really gross. And um, so far, almost like spiraling out of control. No, you're absolutely right. There's no interest in building consensus. It's just that one-upsmanship like yeah. moment that everyone yeah. Yeah. <laughs> were there, uh, what were your favorite parts of this movie? You know, it's, a, it's tough because it's not a favorite parts movie, right? <laughs> it's like this yeah. spiral into like, yeah. you know, unresolved trauma. It's a movie that hurts to watch. Um, as, as brilliant as it is, um, it's, the things that I think about, um, that, that, like, keep me coming back to it, and I, I'm not a movie rewatcher, typically. I, the movies that I rewatch tend to be, I don't want to say they're not smart movies, (laughs) but they're movies that are, are very, um, they're comfort movies. They're they're the silly boot B movies where there's not a lot of substance to them. You know, I like I can watch Night of the Comet a million times because it's just like, yay, watch these girls kill zombies. And there's just not there's not a whole lot to be, you know, latched onto. Um, but I think that it's this movie is interesting for me because usually when I see something so intense my immediate instinct is to never watch it again. But with this, I I just keep going back to it and delving into it. And I love so many details. And I love love how it presents the 80s, especially in like going back to like the distinction between homage and and period piece. And, you know, you think about shows like Stranger Things and um, what was that one? The Void or whatever. even Psycho Gore Man. It's like this like over-the-top depiction of the 80s where the 80s are presented as this, you know, 
uh, like state fair basically like all neon all funky clothing you know mm-hmm. everyone having fun and drinking you know slurpees and eating candy that nostalgically we remember whatever and the sensor does not deal with any of that it's like here's sensor this is what clothes actually looked like in the 80s you know what i mean like these clothes were and dull (laughs) right i mean these are not like cool clothes like this stuff isn't brightly lit she goes to the video store and it's dark and gloomy and that's what like video stores didn't have cool flashing lights or like awesome displays until like you know even blockbuster time and blockbuster was just this you know garish like going to a doctor's office lighting it's like school cafeteria lighting (laughs) did feel blinding in there yeah Uh, it's just it's refreshing to me like not having the 80s treated as this fun nostalgia and having it treated as a real time that a lot of folks lived to through and when intense things happened and this is this you know I love that you talked about the the Thatcher piece and um, how that was going on and so we've got that backdrop we've got the day-to-day lives we've got this little issue of censorship that in you know in this one character's life is this huge thing her life sort of revolves around it and she gets kind of sucked into it in a way and it's just I don't know there's just so many things to think about with this movie that it's it's one I'm going to keep going back to Mm -hmm. because I can think about them and it's not it doesn't feel as as bleak as the movie is it doesn't feel overwhelmingly depressing for some reason yeah which it probably should all things considered but (laughs) yeah I feel like we didn't even touch on the ending which I I love that like juxtaposition of like what Enid thinks she's doing and what's happening in reality and like yeah and to me I feel like that's what like you know like I feel like I've talked to my therapist too much because I just want to talk about dissociation but that's like to me is what I feel like she's in her world and then she gets these glimpses of what the real world is and it's not the same thing and she's created this situation that's just not what's happening and it's so scary that like to me it's so scary because it feels like other descent into madness type movies i just don't hit the nail on the head like that for me yeah and what you said too about enid kind of like disassociating herself into this narrative that she thinks has happened. I think that's really important because like when she has dinner with her parents, you know, they harbor no resentment towards her. And I feel like they're ready to move on. They've got, I mean, the way they do it is kind of odd. Like here, have this death certificate. Let's have dinner. I heard the fish is good. Like, (laughs) I to take her out to dinner to have her look at her sister's death certificate like wow that's not great parenting i'm just gonna say that right now (laughs) but i feel like if they were if they really held enid responsible in their thoughts you know because it just felt like such a 
a mundane thing they were doing. Like, yeah, it was like five years ago. We're all done with it here. Let's be done. You know, I think like if they would have held her responsible like that, that dinner would have never happened. I think there's, there's, I don't think they hold her responsible per se, but I think they're hanging on, hanging on to um, some pieces of who Enid was as a child, which I think parents do, you know, they, they hang on to um, the childhood version of you and sometimes fail to see the adult version of you. And there's a scene where, um, you know, there, the, the dad is yelling at her and saying, you know, you always do it with, without thinking, um, just like you went away with, with her on that day and not blame per se, but this little piece coming out, like this little jab that it's clear that he's been hanging on to. And it's, you know, it speaks to how the this situation is sitting with him too. You know, obviously he could stand to talk to a therapist. <laughs> yeah, the whole family probably could. <laughs> probably, probably, probably could use a good sit down with, with, the, with a therapist and maybe none of this that would have happened. True. You know, and it's probably the fault of Enid's insurance not covering therapy. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Remember in the 80s how therapy or like maybe not necessarily the 80s, but just in the past, therapy was so like, oh, you got right. therapy. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you must oh, yeah. Have. Yeah. I mean, it's still. It's still a thing that is not as normalized as I would like it to be. There are still, you know, contacts where I bring it up and it's like, mm, uh, so does that mean that you are, <laughs> is there something wrong with you if you're going to a therapist? And like, is there something wrong with you if you're going to your doctor? Like sometimes you just get checked up, you get things figured out, you maintain it. It's just, it's how the brain works. Exactly, and it feels so good. Yeah. So good. <laughs> It's like, I got so much stuff I want to dump on my therapist. Like every right? Time. And it's someone in- I could dump that on friends. You can pay to just dump it all on and then you don't have to feel bad or, and, yeah. know, and how are you? <laughs> Sometimes I do feel bad though. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just rained all of this trauma down upon you for an hour and you had to just sit there and take it like a champ. And my therapist always does, but dang, I wouldn't want that job. No, me neither. I, I like to think, you know, they are professionals and they have tools to help them build a little wall around yeah. we rain on them. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I love about this movie is, um, and it's kind of silly and, and not super important, but just seeing static on TV, I feel like you don't see that anymore. And actually, I had an experience this weekend. I hung out with ghost hunters in Menasha, which was quite fun, but they had all these tools that they use. And one of them was like a radio using static that like ghosts were supposed to like jump on and say things. But like, I remember static really scaring me when I was little and now kids, they don't know what static is. They'll never see it on a TV. They'll never have like that scary poltergeist moment or whatever. Right. And there's different, like the different variations in static. I remember like oh, yeah. 
me I mean, obviously I was a weird kid but just like staring at static and trying to see a pattern or something or you know where it's like kind of staticky but you can kind of see the scene and there's this like weird there's like a person in the static or you're yeah. just staring at it and it's like oh it's ants wandering around on the screen yeah it's a weird thing when the TV stations would shut off for the day and then the staff, I ate. Oh, it was unnerving. I didn't like it. Just, the, just like this, this stock footage of the flag waving and the national anthem and then it cuts to static. <laughs> yes. Children of today will never know that simple joy. Of, of not having <laughs> constant entertainment at all times. Yeah, the TV is it's funny fun. because like I'm... I can't stay up late enough to appreciate it anymore. <laughs> like, oh, I can watch whatever I want at 3 a.m. Meanwhile, here's Emma sleeping soundly at 3 a.m., not caring that the whole entertainment of the world is at her fingertips. It's probably better for all of us to just go to sleep. I think sleep is good. <laughs> so any final thoughts on censor? Other thing that I will say is um, the actress who plays Enid, um, Neam, I forgot her last name, but she's just so stoic and so like, she's just amazing. And I, I really hope to see her in more movies and I hope to see more movies from Pano Bailey Bond, the, the director, the filmmaker. And it's just, it's such a great time to be a, like a woman into horror yeah. with people like this making movies that are just thoughtful. Just, uh, you know, look at things from a perspective that we, unfortunately, in like horror being male dominated for so long, haven't been able to see mm -hmm. and this I think censor is just such a great example of what why it's important for women to be making horror hell yeah I love that answer so thank you so much for doing the podcast where can people find out more about you buy your book donate to your conservation work Oh, I would say the first stop is freaktention.com. That's my author website. You can also go to everybodypress.com. That's my publisher's website. And you can order Unicorn Wasteland from there. If you're into supporting my conservation efforts and helping me um, pay to create habitat for endangered bees like the rusty patch bumblebee and monarch butterflies, you can go to patreon.com slash Emma's Wildflower Farm. And I offer various levels there, including a level in which you can get a package of Wisconsin native wildflower seeds once a year. Oh, cool. I need to join that Patreon as well. Yay. Thank you so much for being on Bloody Mary. Have a great Thanks day. Thanks for having me. Bye.